This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome to Energy Sense, an S&P Global podcast covering all things on the intersection of, inter- intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Baden, and I'm here today with Reed Olmsted and Emery Kugler to talk about North America shale sector. How are you all? Doing well. Oh, good. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we are sitting here in person doing a uh, recording in an S&P office in Houston, um, and it is... September 8th, and so the idea here is really to look at this shale sector. Obviously, everyone's seeing the headlines on gas prices being at multi-year highs. Oil prices are down over the past few days and weeks, but have been up relative to 2021 levels and, and 20 levels. And everyone, well, many are asking, what's the shale sector doing? And I think the the, the big message has been capital discipline. We're not going to grow this year. Um, there's the gas question, there's the oil question. And so really what I hope to talk about today is how should we look at the shale sector, both in terms of gas and oil? Can things ramp up if people want it to ramp them up? Um, there's the executive compensation piece that is limiting the willingness of execs to put the pedal to the metal in 2022. Could that change in 23? So, so there's a lot a lot on my mind that I hope we can talk about. So maybe just to set the stage, Reed, you know, where are we? What's the story of the shale sector? Uh, here as we enter the last quarter or so of the year. Yeah. So um, when I think about what's going on in, in the upstream here, I think about something you actually said a few years ago to me, which was um, we were talking about is shale going to grow or something? And you said, yeah, Reed, it's kind of like you saying you're going to stop running four minute miles. <laughs> um, I think the best I ever did was we went running one day and I did it uh, something under eight minutes. And that was the highlight of my running career. But um, even if they wanted to, they can't. Um, okay. and, and it's it's it it really. And we we've been getting this question, and and Emory and I have actually done a lot of looking at this over the last six or eight weeks. But there is nothing these guys can spend money on. They they could double their budgets, and you'd see nothing except the service companies finally get some money. Um, the issue is that the service company, the service sector, is is the bottleneck. It's okay. not resource. It's not. It, it's not investors and all that. It's it. You take all of that off the board, and still the service sector is not recovered. Whether by whether intentionally or unintentionally, the service sector does not have the capacity to deliver to producers in a way that would really allow you know two billion two million barrels a day. I mean, it's exactly. still there to grow. The mechanics of the system are still there to grow, but right now the limit is the service sector. Because of kit or people or both? Everything. Everything. Yeah, yeah. It's a few things, and it's kind of like the the frack spread count is kind of the new rig count. Like, that's what we're really watching. You say, okay, how many barrels and cubic feet can we get online? And you have, they're under the same cash flow sort of pressures from Wall Street in the service sector, but 
their margins have still been pretty thin. So even in the beginning of the year, they were kind of breaking even. A few of the companies, bigger guys were in the red a little bit. And so there's not enough equipment. There's not really cash sitting around to invest because of, and all, all the profits are going to the upstream companies right, right. now. And the pricing pressure you're getting passed along, you know, steel went up, sand went up, whatever. Trucking's more expensive, but you're not getting sort of margin expansion in the service sector. And so that's preventing them from really increasing their capacity. So you, you hear them say, hey, we're going to deploy one more crew next year. And it's going to take us 18 months. It's going to be next year. We're increasing our capacity 5% or we're spending a little money to go diesel to diesel gas, stuff like that. You're not getting a response from the service sector because they just don't have the cash right now to do it, I don't think. And is the equipment stacked or, or is the equipment um, not there? So the equipment has a couple things. Been, the main thing that's happened is it's been cannibalized. I mean, a lack of investment mm -hmm. means you're, if, if you're not going to the grocery store to buy food, you're eating out of the pantry. And that's what these guys did. They were like, well, we're not going to spend our cash to refurbish or maintenance. We're going to go out to this idle equipment and use it. So, so that's part of the problem. Um, it's very expensive to build a, a new spread. And when you look at the payback period versus what's going on in the macro of energy transition and, and all of that, these guys aren't incentivized to invest. I mean, this, is, this isn't anything that, that has been explicitly stated, but it's kind of one of those wink, wink, nod sort of hints you get when, you, when you're talking to people in the industry. What's their incentive to go spend $500 million building new frack spreads if they're and then having to hire 40 or 50 people right. and train them? And that's going to be the lowest margin. That's going to be the lowest margin crew in their fleet. It, it, why are they going to do that if regulations come in, if energy transition comes in, they're seeing uh, subsidies to alternatives? Um, or, you know, when price drops and activity levels go down, you know, they're the ones that are going to be eating it, right? They're going to have to eat the cost and the investment. And they're like, we've, we've, we've been on this roller coaster. We know exactly where it goes. And they're not interested in, in putting forth that money, particularly when they're still just barely, barely eking by. And I think another interesting point, and we brought it up in the forecast, was that, you know, the headline, $10 Henry Hub. The last time Henry Hub was $10, the shape of the futures curve was entirely different. Okay. So it's going to be interesting as we go into kind of planning season for next year to say, okay, are we, no one's going to bank on $10. Are they going to bank on five? Are they going to bank on four? Right. Right. No one's going to bank on a hundred. Are they going to bank on 70, 60, you know, kind of what's the planning price? And so I think that's another side. The price uncertainty means there's not going to be an aggressive growth. Okay. Because maybe we're planning on, you know, 74 is kind of the planning price as we go into the first quarter of next year. So I think there's just, there's a lot of things that are making people hesitant to invest a lot of money. Yeah. And yeah. so even, so, so, so with the, so the service sector capacity, even if somebody wanted to grow, that, that there's no way to, to, to kind of push on that. Um, well, keep in mind, you can still grow with what we've got. Right. Okay. But when I think about what limits, more upside. I think we're looking probably about 800,000 barrels a day of onshore growth next year. 
Okay. And that's from a position of growth. We've been growing recently, modestly? A little bit. We, so, so to, to get into the weeds here, we were expecting, when we put out our forecasts in January, we were expecting about a million of growth this year. A lot of, majority of that coming from onshore. Um, those volumes haven't been showing up because of things we've talked about, primarily service sector bottlenecks. The capital is being spent, the rigs are deployed. We're just not seeing the volume show up yet. And this is specific to oil? Yes. Okay. Gas gas is kind of working itself out. But on the oil side, we haven't seen that that good growth trajectory. We are still expecting an uptick at the, in, you know, at the end of the year. And we will intend, we, our forecast continues that with probably going to be about 900 of growth next year, 750 to 900 probably. We're, we're just kind of rounding out some numbers. So we will grow. But when you look at where we're coming from, it is our trajectory is not, not following the price trajectory, right? Coming from negative $37, $40 to 130, you know, earlier this year, and now we're around 80. We're not, we're not getting a huge surge in supply like we did in 2018 or 19. And are we back to what was the peak, 19 or 20? Are we back to those levels in terms of daily production? Peak was December of 19 at 12.7, and we are still about a million off of that. Okay, so we are growing, and we should reach that peak at some point in 23? Yeah, we were, Emory and I, when when we worked the numbers earlier this year, we were thinking we'd hit that at the exit this year Mm -hmm. in December, and now we're looking, you know, maybe next summer-ish. Okay. And it's... So as people, you mentioned kind of planning, and so it's September, people are starting to think about 23. Um, how, how's the conversation, and does that conversation differ by oil-focused operators, gas-focused operators, and those with optionality? So I spent a good part of my summer uh, talking with clients and operators, and I've spent a lot of time in the last six weeks, like I said, talking with people about what's going on in the completions market. There is no consistency. I've, I had one, one person tell me that when he plans his, his he says, $100 oil is my go forward for the next 10 years. When okay. I plan, I'm planning. Cool. And I had one guy say, I can't make a plan because you've got a recession. You've got energy transition. I don't understand the implications of the IRA. Um, there's so much uncertainty out there pushing and pulling. So I think there is no consistency in how people feel except cautious even at a hundred dollar oil he's saying i'm gonna make i'm gonna harvest cash okay i'm gonna plan on a hundred dollar oil and i'm just gonna harvest cash i don't understand where the world's going so i'm gonna harvest cash that's what people are doing i'll I'll say on the gas side like we were going through a marcellus update right Mm -hmm. now and on the gas side you look at an investor presentation and it's six lines about cash flow, how much money is coming yeah. Yeah. in debt, right? Hang out yeah. debt, special dividends, whatever dividends. Um, and then, oh, hey, there's an appendix. Here's our type curve for Marcellus. So it's kind of, I think, uncertainty is driving it to say, okay, look, we're money, we're paying out dividends, we're getting our financial situation in order. 
And that's the priority, not like, oh, hey, we've got blowout production numbers. Mm-hmm. And like you said at, at the beginning, you know, I think the, the executive compensation is, you know, all built around that as well. So, well, I think that was one of the big changes coming out of the last downturn is right. executive compensation shifted from growth at all costs to almost growth at no cost. That, that we, you, we want to return money to investors. We want to show prudency and i think in many cases we want to either decarbonize operations or scale up um, in terms of you know acquisition or um, other types of growth opportunity from more of a base so if we're thinking about that you say there's no consistency within the operators how has the competitive environment changed as, as we're looking at a hundred dollar oil compared to the last time right the, the shale has always been a highly fragmented business mm-hmm. there's been a lot of consolidation or a degree of consolidation there, there's been some zombie companies that have disappeared yeah are you able today to look at, i know chevron is big in the permian and exxon is big in the permian and obviously pioneer is big in the permian are you able to look across the sector and let's start with oil to say all right well these three to six operators are going to dictate the sector or is it still fragmented enough that people so yes, anything goes so yes and no um we're saying a lot of consolidation. it used to be that you would have you know every quarter i would read you know 80 slide decks mm-hmm. you know like what are what's every operator saying i remember back in like 2015 i did a slide that showed just the how many public operators meaningful public operators there were in the permit i was like these guys are going away the world investors don't need a selection of 30 permanent companies to invest right and i've got you know six or eight ten um so that that's the yes side yeah we've seen consolidation and you can look at those guys but then the backfill is they're like half the rigs in the permit are run by private operators and half of those are only running one rig so it's like Yes, there's been consolidation on the on the big end, but there's this huge long tail of small companies that nobody's got a lead on, and they can still move the needle on an aggregate yeah. basis. Yeah, in aggregate they can. Obviously, you know you've got a company like Mewborn that's out there running eighteen, twenty something rigs. Mm-hmm. They move the needle independently. Sure, can. but um, when you've got fifty companies each running one. We track this and some, you know, you can see they run a rig for, they drill a well, and then they go two months before they run another rig. Can they get it completed in that time? Or, or is, is that so tight that I they speculate the whole thing? As we watch, there's data lags and all that. But I mean, a lot of these guys are still trying to create a new bench. Mm-hmm. Right. So. I think, yes, if you want to get a sense for where the industry is going on the public side, yeah, you're right. There's a handful of companies you need to watch. Okay. If you want to get a sense for where it's going in aggregate, I think that's a little hard. And Emory, are you seeing the public's... Is, is anybody in the public sector talking? I, I, we, we see the headlines that private equity-run companies are growing and less responsive to some of the prudent... The headlines that, that the public companies is any of that conversation changing with the public companies, particularly those who have scale and maybe able to influence service sector better than smaller. I, I think if they do, it's going to come at the cost of 
someone else. You know, you may get a little extra market share or, or a company. You're not hearing about growth. And if it does come, it's going to be the private guys will probably not be able to complete those wells anymore. And so maybe start dropping some of those ratings. But I think yeah, I'm not seeing it anywhere where hey, we're aggressive, we're growing, we're kind of building into this relatively high price market. That's just not a message that's coming out. And is anybody drilling it? You know, pe people were quarrying up when prices collapsed and drilling their most productive wells, which had this upside risk and kind of a position where people didn't want the upside risk on production. Now that oil is $80 and there's a potential person out there with a $100 confidence for the next 10 years, are they drilling the less productive acreage and, and trying to monetize those barrels now, or are they still cored up? So we've done a look that we're not seeing massive low grading. Uh, so everybody poured up. We're not seeing massive low grading. We're not seeing people trying to step out and delineate new areas. People are still reluctant to put capital at risk. Okay. That's how I look at it. They are willing to put, you know, I was talking with one operator that said, you know, said, yeah, we'll put some capital at risk, but what we're going to do is we're going to drill a 20,000 foot deep well or 15,000, you know, in a play where we normally drill 8,000 feet deep. We're going to drill and log the whole thing. And so that's going to cost them, that's a $20 million well instead of $8 million well. That's what they're putting. They're not saying, well, here's a new area. I've had some, some decent results. I'm going to, I'm going to set up a, a rig schedule here. This is going to be one of my, one of my programs this year. No one, we're not hearing that. We're hearing people are, are trying to, they will put capital at risk to, to potentially extract more from where they are. Mm -hmm. They're not putting capital at risk to find more in a new area. Okay. And, and they're not monetizing. If you've got a, I'm going to make up numbers, a $60 location that you know you can make money on today and you might not be able to make money on it in two years, they're still taking the $30 location today and then taking the cash flow from that. Yeah, this is a question that we've actually gotten a lot. And and it's still a, you drill your best well today. Yeah. And and part of the reason is you don't know if oil is going to go to 40 tomorrow. Right. And that goes back to the uncertainty, right? Even crafting the scenario almost in this world. So I don't want to, I don't want to put $60 break-evens in my plan when I've got $40 break-even opportunities. One, there's the uncertainty factor. And two, your investors are going to say, why are you wasting my money? Mm -hmm. You know, I want it now. Not, I don't want to wait until oil is $45 for you to drill a $40 sure, yeah. well. I want you to drill a $40 well when oil is 8 bucks. And how about gas? So we've... Yeah, gas has been kind of an unloved commodity, and now people are. I've seen a couple of companies that made a big play about getting out of gas. Yeah, now refocusing and making a big play about getting into gas. And yeah. gas has gone crazy on a percentage basis. It has. Gas has been huge. I mean, it's crazy the swings. I mean, I look and and in two years ago, forty cent daily moves in gas was huge, and I was like, oh, it's Tuesday again. Right. It's all ten dollars down to seven fifty. I, I haven't looked today in the last ten minutes. It could be eight fifty. It could be six. I mean, it's the swings are huge. Our outlook, and I think this is, you know, you look at, you look at all the 
we see everything and I think our outlook is pretty consistent with you know we're the free port issue uh, at that LNT facility allowed us to build storage so we're looking better for this for the winter uh, and then we'll come out in winter and we'll see prices decline probably not down to where we were a couple of years ago but you know in that 350 to five dollar world uh, probably uh, for next next spring um, a lot of what's going on though is we are going to still have oil. I mean, we're going to have 750 to 900,000 barrels probably that brings on a lot of associated gas. So when we look at our outlook for next year, half the growth is an associated gas. Like half the, half the gas growth is associated. And, and then, you know, we're pulling the lever on the Haynesville pretty hard. That's the one where we've really seen activity increase. Mm-hmm. Um, the economics are good. Um, and so, so we're pulling on that hard comparatively. Um, and the problem is with gas is, you know, once we get past this acute period of storage, the world needs energy, just the U.S. can't supply it yet. You know, right. and we all know that we don't have the LNG facilities built. And again, I think that there's a push to do that now. But always in the back of these guys' minds is what happens if I have a 20-year finance plan and it doesn't come to fruition. Mm-hmm. Ten years ago, everybody was like, oh, yeah, we're going to need this stuff for the next 100 years. And now it's like, well, maybe we don't. Um, and so we go back to that uncertainty. Yeah. And, and we have all pipes. And it, get, one of the big conversations about gas has been the lack of pipeline, particularly in the Northeast. I think maybe to less degree in Haynesville, but to some degree, we've got the service sector constraint across gas and oil. Are there pipe constraints or infrastructure constraints in gas, or is there room for growth in that area if, if people wanted to to accept it? Yeah, I mean, we've been kind of telling the story for a while now about you know, Marcellus and Oxton. You, you can't really get, that's another kind of knock against growth, is that you don't have any pipelines mm-hmm. coming on stream. Um, and so you almost have to hold the Marcellus flat overall. There's just no more offtake. You know, maybe you could grow another bead or two uh, and kind of fill up the last of the pipeline, but there's no ability there. So that pushes all the growth down to the Haynesville. And you saw that with Southwestern getting some Haynesville transactions last year, Chesapeake doing the same, saying, oh, okay, we've got this essentially now a cash cow, tons of inventory, but we can't grow it. And then, okay, Haynesville, we can ramp up or ramp down to kind of respond to price. Feed the LNG. Exactly. Right. And and that's the growth capital for those couple of gas players. And is that consolidation? We, we talked about oil being 50-50 consolidated, non-consolidated. Is the same true within gas or is that more fragmented? There's still a few private companies floating around that I think, uh, especially in the Haynesville, mm-hmm. that, that maybe could be some target. I and mean, we just saw Tug Hill, you know, BQT seems to every six months or so, pick someone to buy up. And they're, they're getting a bigger and bigger piece of that Marcellus pine. And you're down to about probably six or eight gas operators that really matter at this point. <laughs> Two things. You got to make sure that you meet what, like, the fourth largest gas producer is also the largest oil producer. Basically. I mean, right. so when you're yeah, looking at right. pure gas producer, right. because you got a lot of associated gas. But also, you know, Emory, right. The Haynesville in the last two years has gone from private 
to the public, mm-hmm. with the exception of like one or two holdouts. You know, uh, Rockcliffe is still there running four rigs over in in western Louisiana, East Texas, and there are probably a couple other small ones. I think Rockcliffe is the largest private. You have Athon too. Oh yeah, Athon. Yeah. Comstock could turn out to be the uh, the gas version of Continental that going private. Who knows? Yeah. But yeah, it'd just be Athon and Rockcliffe, and those guys are kind. You don't get the transparency. You don't get the communication. But they 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 are acting like public companies in terms of rig counts and whatnot. You know, their material to the place as opposed to a long tail of a hundred operators in And so, how do you guys see it when you're looking at the I'll call them diversified, which is an unfair word, but but those those who have gas opportunities and oil opportunities, thinking. Of, about what we know today, and I know there's uncertainty in all the gas prices and oil prices. But it, in that boardroom, is there a debate between putting the rig to work in gas or oil if you can only choose one? And where do you guys see that rig going if you have quote unquote equal opportunities? So when I've been talking with clients, that has not come up. Uh, a lot of the clients that we, we've spoken with are either gas or oil. And that's a good question. I worked at a company years ago that had gas and oil assets, and we ran, you know, the question became how we make the decision. I don't know how they're doing that this year. I think they're probably looking at how how they maximize cash flow. Right. When I've talked to when I've talked to clients, the overarching theme is we have a cash flow target and we deploy our capital in a way to hit that. We have we're looking at a three-year horizon of how much cash flow we want. And so we build our budget and we build our plan according to meeting that. We don't have a growth target. We don't have, but that's all they care about is how they deploy capital to meet mm-hmm. that cash flow. And so I think that if you're sitting in a sitting in the you know planning sessions, that's what they're looking at. You know, is is running two rigs at this gas asset accretive to that cash flow objective? Okay. Yeah, and you saw like EOG or their Dorado yeah. stuff and the Eagleford and Austin Chalk, I guess, potential. They're willing to go after gas to some extent, but I also think that's hooked up to contracts to mm-hmm. okay. right out to Corpus Christi. So it's like if they can kind of set up almost like if you think about your big conventional project. Okay, we've got gas. Let's find a place to put it for 20 years and then we'll go ahead and go forward with the upstream, which we haven't really seen in the US. So that was sort of an interesting channel. Yeah. And then you got what Delorean mm-hmm. still kind of doing their upstream that maybe you're getting some linkage there that is, is driving a decision to prefer gas. You know, as you were talking about the Maori yeah. month, and that was based on like that kind of came up because they finally got some infrastructure, right? So right. it goes back to one of these things where if you can get that risk and uncertainty down, maybe it makes sense. Yeah. And, and I think we're going to. Have to maybe to change the conversation a little longer term. We just updated, we're about to publish our new resource estimates. And when you start looking at core exhaustion, you know, we're good for another eight or 10 years, but then there is going to be a need to either find resource or sort of manage the decline as we go past, you know, around 2030 or so. So all this cash, maybe there's some opportunity to try some new plays. Yeah. It, whether it's the Powder River, whether it's gas, you're just not by Pioneer. Mitch, 
the Barnett and the Woodford and the Permian. Oh, yeah. Barnett, Woodford and the Permian? Trying for, trying for gas and saying, okay, look, we've got a good, you know, five or 10 year plan. What's the 20 year plan? And, and that may involve some. Yeah. No one's talking about the Floyd Shale, the Tuscaloosa Marine Shale. The old TI. <laughs> There's a little jack. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, so, so how about, I guess, think, thinking more immediate term hedges that, that I was talking with an operator this week. And uh, so you're all you know, looking at getting more aggressive. You know, what, what do you think? So, well, this has been a good year, but all, all the hedges have limited our upside. So, so are, are people able to reduce some of that uncertainty for next year by hedging? without capping themselves in the way that happened this year. You'll have to talk to the trading desk. <laughs> I'll say that the, the big gas operators have left a lot of money on the table to share some hedges this year. And we have not seen aggressive uptake there. Like maybe we would have in the past. I wouldn't say aggressive, but from our, from our viewing, the hedges are off pace. Okay. Compared to this year's. We can say like on the gas side, we Next year, all the companies that were heavily hedged, well, not every single one, but most of them cut way back. You know, they were 60, 80% hedged. Now they're 20, 30% hedged. Okay. But which is much lower than we've seen in previous years. So I think everybody got burned. But now they want to. And even the hedge price, though, they're not, they're, they're like, I think the average hedge price that we're seeing yeah. is like 385 or something. Really? Right. So they're, it's real conservative. Let's say how much volume are you getting yeah. at eight dollar price? Right. I don't know that you can lock in that sort of hedge right now. Yeah. Like Reed's saying, a lot of those hedges are coming out at three fifty, something like that. So okay. So despite the uncertainty, people don't want to lock in. in they don't uncertainty. <laughs> yeah, they don't want to lock in three dollars, and they're still floating around eight dollars. You know, there's still sort of that balance. So just saying, okay, we'll we'll accept the risk. Yeah, and it seems like I, I don't net net if you look at. 10 years, hedges are barely neutral. Yeah. Like, like you lose out some years, you win out some years. It's, yeah, lock in some cash flows, but you're not going to yeah. make money on hedges. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, so, so I, I want to maybe wrap it up with one other question. But, but before I do, you know, that for, for all those listening that want to reach out to us and, and learn more, it's energysensethatihsmarket.com. And we'll put a link into the liner notes of uh, this podcast for more information about Read Memories service. So I guess just you know that, that last question before we go, what, what are y'all thinking in terms of 2023? Is it going to be more of the same or are we seeing a, a new and better loved shale sector that, that starts to operate differently? Is it, you know, how, how should we expect things to, to, to look next year? <laughs> you know, and this is the joy of our jobs. You sit around and you're like, oh, but have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? And, and you know, we've talked about all the pushes and pulls and whatnot. But in the end, these guys are going to be very cautious in what they do. They've been, you go back to 2014, 2015, 2020, they know the downside. They've lived through it. So, so I think that, you know, the, I think there's going to be a lot of caution next year. Okay. Um, but caution is relative. It, it's it's sort of. I read a book years ago. The statistics say that it's you know more dangerous to drive your car in daylight on a on an interstate highway than to like you have a better chance of dying doing that than like taking a single engine plane in a rainstorm, right? So it's all relative. So so they're going to be cautious for 
$80 oil and $4 gas. But they're still going to be somewhat aggressive. We're looking at spending $130, $140 billion next year. That's it's getting up there. It's a lot of money. That's last year they spent $70 wow, seven billion. And we're looking next year at like $140. Now, a lot of that's going to the service sector. We're not starting to compensate. But we are still expecting growth. I think we've got three or four BCF of gas growth. But again, that a lot of that's going to be associated. Mm-hmm. And we've still got 750, 900,000 barrels of oil and freight. We're going to have 150 billion in free cash flow going back into investors, whether through dividends or buybacks or debt, something, debt repayments. But that's 150 billion they're not putting back to the drill bit. Right. So keep in mind, that's, that's a lot. That's conservative, even though they're sp- the spending is going to be very aggressive. Uh, in absolute terms. I don't know if that makes, I don't know if I framed that really well, but I think that when you look at what the possibility is, the system could easily, outside of service sector constraints, mm-hmm. there's enough capital that in normal equilibrium markets and of service sector and, and upstream, you could grow a million and a half, two million barrels a day easily. Okay. So only grow 750 is being cautious. That's my, that's my take. Yeah, it, I tend to agree. I think the cash flow, especially if we start running into just general economic turbulence, we got a lot of cash flow in the energy sector. Those prices seem to be fairly high. So we may get some love for the sector again just for that. That, you know, multiples are so low that it's pretty crazy right now. So you could see, again, you know, the commitment to sort of the ESG investment policies and stuff like that might be tested a little bit. Uh, so you may have some hope for a little more love for this channel sector <laughs> for, for at least a year or two. Well, and the honest truth is energy transition, ESG, all that. Look, the world still needs oil and natural gas. Mm-hmm. So, and it's going to have to be supplied somehow. Well, it's not, I should say too, you know, listening to the gas investor presentations, I, I missed the part in the middle, which was to say, hey, it's all cash flow. Oh, here's three pages on ESG. Here's all the projects we're doing to be net zero in two or three years. Right. So there's a pretty rapid adaptation by the industry, I think, to say, okay, this is what we got to do. We're going to go get it done. Uh, and that's what they're good at, it's sort of executing and getting things done in the field. So, yeah. you know, we could kind of see a little greening of the industry and now I think we've already seen it. So a lot of cash flow, a little more favorable <laughs> environmental factors. That's that's all working in favor of the industry. Yeah. So a greening of the industry either way, but perhaps some some, in, <laughs> some, some related to environment and some related to piles of cash. <laughs> all right. Well, that's a good place to leave it. Thank you both. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Bill. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.